The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. Well, I invite your attention this morning, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, and uh, as we get there, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand up as you're churning your page in honor of the word of the Lord. If you're visiting with us, we stand just as a way to show respect for the word of God. You can read your Bible sitting down, driving in the car, lots of other things, but especially as we gather, we want to just make that a note as we do. So Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to be in four verses. I will be completely honest with you. I thought about uh, rounding out the chapter, thought about going from Hebrews 3, is it verse 7 down to the end of chapter, uh, verse 19 or so, uh, verse 18, 19, but these verses that we're going to look at are going to seem like to many of you, we are preaching, I know, I know our, I, I hope, Nelson and Brian and I know our flock well enough that as I look out at you, we know that the majority of you in this room know Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord, right? Isn't that awesome? What a great thing. So when we read these verses, I just want to put an asterisk on this. Many of you are going to look at this and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. That has no bearing on my life. That doesn't speak to me at all. But let me tell you, if you have any person in your life, whether they be kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, whatever, this is a picture of those folks. But Christian, I want to remind you that unbelief is, a re- is the deadliest of all sins. And this is a prayer As you look through this, that should sober your heart. Next week, we're going to look at, if you look down at verse, we'll read in just a second here, where he says, verse 12, take care, brothers. This is where he goes more to the believers about this belief. But this week, as we read through this, we're primarily speaking to people who do not know Jesus. Don't pick the verses, just going in line. I want you to know that, but don't check out on me. Got me? So if I say amen, and that wakes you up 20 minutes from now, praise the Lord, right? But I want you to remember, this is the word of God. Every line is applicable to your faith and your world. So let's read it together. Hebrews 3, 7 through 11. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You've read that twice now. I told you we were going to read it a lot today from Psalm 95. I pray this morning, Christian, that if you get anything out of this message, it is a deeper appreciation to pray for and to seek out and to continue to love and share the gospel with all those in your life that this is the picture of them. And remind yourself that you too, apart from God's awakening grace, rescuing grace, or this person, and how much you should praise him all the more. Will you bow your heads with me this morning, and we'll go before our Lord. Lord, thank you for the time. These are sobering words, a parenthesis, one of the five or six parentheses in the book of Hebrews that takes a step aside to preach evangelistically the message of the gospel. Father, I know we're mostly, for as far as we know, before you, amongst people who believe this truth. But Lord, remind us, challenge us, put on our hearts the people especially who don't know this truth. We pray, and we ask this soberly in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, I was in Mexico 20 years ago when William Jewell offered me three months to study abroad in Guadalajara, Mexico, so I did not have to take two and a half years of Spanish. I jumped on every opportunity and ate every taco I possibly could, even if it cost me Montezuma's revenge, and that's another problem. But I will tell you this. This is something I came to see. If you, many of you people have been here before. Ripley's Believe It or Not. You ever heard this before? There was a guy named Ripley, whatever his name was, and he collected all sorts of things. It's not the Guinness Book of World Records, but Ripley was a man who collected all sorts of odd things like this. Amy, if you want to put up the next one. This is an actual snake that ate a light bulb one day for dinner. And they, they took an x-ray of it, and it ended up in the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum. Then there's this guy. You've seen his face before. This is a man. If you've seen any Howdy Doody type shows, he shows up on everything. They found him to make, um, the measurement was that he could puff his cheeks up the most out of anyone they've ever measured. Who measures this stuff anyway, right? And this was my favorite, because some of you, I thought of some of you with dry humor. This is the oldest uh, living flagpole alive. Do you get it? He's on a pole, and he's blowing in the wind. He's a flagpole. This is in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Some of you all are ready to go right now, aren't you? The closest one is in Dallas. You can go there after service. It's an eight-hour drive. Have fun. There are some things in this world that are just astonishing and astronomical. If you want to look it up, there really are some interesting things there. But I want you to know something that is not. And some things we are weirded out by. Like they, they have the fingernails of the person with the longest fingernails that were like six feet long. It's just gr gross. They have the, the, the people with the longest beards. They cut it off. I thought of you, Jack Kimbrell, because you used to do this with your white beard. You know, it's just gross, and we get weirded out, like, how could that ever happen? But, you know, when it comes to spiritual matters, one of the greatest travesties, I think, that happens in our world is sometimes we are not blown away anymore that people simply just don't believe. We just accept it as a fact. You ever think about that? If Ripley could have a believe it or not for Christianity and believing the truths of Christianity, it might be that people just simply reject it. How unbelievable. How could you deny this God who loves you so much? How could you not see so clearly that you sinned and you're a sinner and you need to be saved? I mean, that's more unbelievable than anything, including this weird guy that looks like KFC's Colonel Sanders flying on a flagpole. How could you not think that's the most unbelievable thing ever? But friends, I'm here to tell you and remind you that as Matthew 13, 58 says, and Amy will put this up, you, as Jesus is working in his hometown, it said in there that he did many mighty works there. But he did not do, rather, many mighty works there because of their unbelief. One of the most unbelievable things about this world is that people unbelieve in this world. They don't believe in Jesus. I mean, if you're a Christian and you look around and you say, how can you not? It's so easy. You can present them 100 facts from Josh McDowell's evidence that demands a verdict, and you can love them more than Mother Teresa on, on, on EPO or whatever the athletic steroids are. And you can do that till the cows come home and someone can look at you and say, I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't care. Unbelief is a really deadly sin. So much so that the psalmist and the writer of Hebrews wrote about it because they thought it was such a bad thing. But do you know what Spurgeon said, that great Baptist preacher? He said, unbelief will destroy the best of us, but faith will save the worst of us. At the heart of sin is unbelief. And unbelief may seem neutral at first, but it does not stay there long because it's always an affront to God's character. It's always putting in doubt what he's done in the past, what he will do in the present, and what he's going to do in the future. And if you're here today and you know Christ, I want to remind you, you live in an unbelieving world. 
We should not be surprised, but we are, that people don't believe. The Bible says there will be those who reject God until the cows come home. Go read Revelation. Even when the mountains fall down, they're still in their cave saying, God, I got this. I'm going to go in NORAD in, uh, in, in the Colorado mountains, and no, one, no nuclear strike can stop me. Until the very, very end, people will disbelieve. So where are you today? Are you believing lies that Satan has given, or, or are you believing what God has said? What is unbelief about? It's really about this. Unbelief is a failure, and this is the big idea today. Unbelief is a failure to recognize the immeasurable greatness and goodness of the Son of God. That's really what it's all about. At the heart of every person who does not believe is someone who does not want to believe Jesus for who he really is. That's what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit's all about. You've heard that before. When you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're basically saying to God, I don't believe anything that you say about your son, Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. And so this speaks this morning to every teen who's here who grew up in a Christian home who's yet to come to Christ. This morning, this speaks to every husband and father who may be here who's going through the routine of church to keep peace at the home with the wife or the kids. This speaks to every mother who's grown up, but you're still married to the world, perhaps. This speaks to every senior adult who many of you grew up with cultural Christianity, but you've never truly been born again. This is speaking to you today, if that's you. And I want to tell you this morning that an unbelief is a refusal to hear God's word. It really is rejecting it, repudiating it. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's condemning it. It's whatever you want to call it. It's saying to God, I got this, and I don't need you, and I got this, and I don't want you. But Christian, before you just point the finger at the non-Christian, remember this, that as Christians, we sometimes unbelieve God too. God, oh, man, you couldn't do that work in our day. God, you can't save that person. Have you seen how wicked that person is? God, really? Could you really save that person? When you utter those things, you are getting into unbelief even if you're saved. So be careful as you do. You may note here that this seems like where in the world did this come from? Last week we were considering Jesus, right? We were having the Hallelujah Choir. And Nelson, by the way, he went to a, a seminary to find out that Hallelujah means praise the Lord or something like that. Whatever he said up here during the scripture, I'm picking on Nelson, by the way. But I want you to know, this is a parenthesis. This is a parenthesis in the book of Hebrews. He's taking a break to preach the gospel. Some of you, and I need to know this too, is that when we come to Hebrews, it is the most evangelistic book there is in the whole Bible. Probably so. Because every time he goes back to who we're not and who God is. Who we're not and who God is. If you want someone to come to Christ, take them to the book of John. Take them later to the book of Hebrews. The gospel is preached. So where are you today? Do you know someone like this? Maybe so. Five things today. Five truths about why unbelief is so deadly. Five truths about why unbelief is so deadly. You see the first one there? It's, it's, it's deadly because it refuses God's voice. It refuses God's voice. Look at verse 7. It says, therefore, based on all we looked at last week, considering Jesus, considering that he is the God-man, he is the one who is building the house, he's superior to Moses, he's greater than Moses, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. Look, whenever the gospel is made known to you, for you to continue in unbelief is not to refuse a preacher or a man, but literally is God himself. The therefore frames where we've been, it says that God built the house, built the house, the foundation, the spiritual foundation in verses 1 to 6. But he's reminding you here at the end of verse 6. Look at the end of verse 6. Don't forget this from last week. He says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and boasting 
in our hope. When you reject God's voice, you are basically in unbelief saying that I'm not sure I really know that I'm a Christian. And friends, I want to remind you this morning that just because you come to church, just because you know someone who goes to church, doesn't mean you are saved. Just because you sit in a garage doesn't make you a car. Just because you quack like a duck doesn't mean you're a duck. And put on their hashtag all binary gender discussions in that equation. Look, you can be somewhere, but it doesn't make it a reality in your life. You can go to the gym every day of your life and have a towel around your neck. It doesn't mean you've lost any weight. And kittens, I don't know who said that, but I think everybody agrees. Kittens born in a bread basket don't make them biscuits, to say it another way. Or you can be baptized, as Adrian Rogers said, so many times that the tadpoles know your social security number. Look, you can be baptized and it doesn't wash away your sin. Therefore, are you in God's house? Are you ready in his family? And he says there, it's not a guarantee that just because you're in the house of God, that you're in the house of God. You're in the family of God. You're really a Christian. So he says that phrase there, just as the Holy Spirit says. Hold your, hold your Bible there. Go to chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 4, verse 7. I want to show you something quickly. You notice in verse 7 of chapter 4 that he quotes the same, same thing again from Psalm 95. He says, today saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted. Well, writer of Hebrews, which is it? Who wrote it down? Was it the Holy Spirit or was it David? And Pastor Nelson's favorite answer is, yes, it's both. The answer is, is that when we are rejecting God's voice, we are rejecting first the Holy Spirit. When we reject God, we're rejecting that the Holy Spirit is moving on his heart. And that's why we always say, today is the day of salvation. Don't put off today what you can do tomorrow. But do you know what most people do, don't you? They grow up in church. They walk around church. They say, someday when I have a family, when I get a job, when I get settled, I will come in and I'll go to church and settle my life with Jesus. Friend, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, today is the day of salvation. But I also want to remind you today, Christian, if you know someone that you've been putting off sharing the gospel with, today is the day of salvation. How do we know this? The Holy Spirit says. This is a doctrine of inspiration, divine inspiration. The Bible is the word of God. It's used, and he used men like David to record the message without error, 2 Timothy 3, 1 Peter 1, etc. But what he is saying is this. Because the Holy Spirit says it, you better listen up. But guys, I want to remind you, we don't need the book of Enoch. We don't need the book of uh, uh, Judas or whatever, what we have from Genesis to Revelation is it, and it's inspired. 45 years ago, has it been that long? Baptists were fighting whether the Bible was actually true. Can you believe that? Praise God for men and women and families who stood up and said, no, this is the word of God, and this is why we fight for it. Look at verse 7. It underscores the seriousness of the beliefs. What are they doing here? He says, it's present tense. God is speaking through his scripture, and Psalm 95 continues to speak. What's he speaking about? He's speaking about how people in those days rejected the voice of God. How when they came before God, they wanted nothing to do with him because they wanted to go their own way. Hold your spot there. We're going to be flipping a little bit here in this first point. Go to Exodus 17. Exodus 17. I want to remind you about where we came from. Our young kids in their uh, study and the elementary ages are going through. Their, they're in the promised land now in Joshua, but they just got out of this last quarter in Exodus 17 and following the Exodus and all that goes with that, the wilderness. 
But I want to remind you where they came from. Why is he quoting this? Why is he saying this? Why are they refusing this? Look at Exodus 17. And it says in verse 1, All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. And therefore the people quaked or quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said to him. This was Bellyache Baptist Church, by the way, if you didn't know that already. Verse 3, but the people thirsted there. Why do you grumble? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with theirs? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're ready to stone me. And the Lord said, pass on before me and take with you some of the elders and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go and behold, and stand before there, the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And everything was hunky-dory after that, and Disney wrote a movie about it, right? Because that's how it worked out. No. These people continued to complain and complain and complain and complain and complain and complain and complain. God gave them manna, which means what is this? He could have given them a T-bone steak from uh, whatever your favorite steakhouse is every day, and they still would have complained. Christian, don't think we are too far from that tree, because this could easily be us. And when you have a heart that's not trusting in God, nothing is never enough. When you have a heart that is that just flows out of unbelief, nothing God gives you is sufficient. Go back to Hebrews 3. So why is he saying this? Because they're rejecting the voice of God. Christian, I want to remind you today that God has been so good to you, hasn't he? He's provided for you first and foremost, his son, Jesus Christ. But he takes care of you every day. Look, gas prices are going up, food's going up. Somehow in the midst of that, God will take care of us. He always does. And at the apex of everything is Christ. But if you're here today, and Amy will put this up on the screen, if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting the greatest goodness God has given you. you it is a more serious offense than you think. But if you receive Jesus, it's more of a miracle than you can imagine. These people rejected the voice of God so much that it took 40 years to wither them down to literally the last one. Church, can I take a note to say something to our church for a second? Here at Tower View Baptist Church, we can easily become these people if we're not careful. Part of our jobs as pastors is not to get you to look inside so much, but to point you outward so much, to look outside at the world around you, that it's dying, that it needs Christ that you have a miracle within you walking around. If you know Jesus, you have the greatest miracle that you, the world has ever known. You have salvation, the Holy Spirit. You have God himself residing within you. What an awesome thing. But if you're not a Christian here today, rejecting the voice of God is literally doing so at your own peril. He loves you. He died for you. But the only way to come to him is by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. We sang about that just a little while ago. So the first danger of unbelief is rejecting the voice of God. But look at number two. It's provoking or provokes. Unbelief provokes God's heart. It provokes God's heart. Look at the end of verse 8. And it says, on the day of testing, uh, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. Look, what gets God's heart really going the wrong way? It's when they come to a point where they say, I want nothing to do with you. Verse 10, it says, I was angry at this generation. Verse 11 says, I swore in my wrath. The word provoke literally means, according to A.T. Robertson, embitterment. 
God's heart literally becomes embittered towards the sinner. That sounds funny, but I want to walk this with you. And it's the same word that in Revelation 10, 9, and 10, when a great star fell down, many died because there were embittered, there was bittered waters. When they tested in the wilderness, they were testing the very heart of God. Look, God's heart is for his people. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But when we refuse to come to God, it is a stench to God, a stench I ran down on Friday after, on Friday morning. It was not in the nighttime. I felt like I was in another universe, like there's actually running that exists at 1030 in the morning on a Friday. But when I was running on Friday, I was down off old 210 Highway where all the innards of all the animals that we eat get trucked to and burned at that time of day. Do you know which way the wind was blowing from? Due south. And the first three miles out, I thought, man, this was the stupidest decision I've made in a really long time because it stunk. And it stunk really bad. And if you smelled it up here, it's probably what you smell off Old 210 Highway. But I'll tell you this, nothing smells worse to God than people who say, I want nothing to do with you. God is sick so much that in Revelation 3, and you know these words, don't you? You are cold. You're neither cold nor hot. You are lukewarm. And what did Jesus say? I will spew you, spit you, literally vomit you out of my mouth. Christian, if you're here today and you are walking with Christ, I want to remind you, if you're truly in Christ, you cannot lose your salvation. But there's a point at which that if you keep going this way, that there's a point at which you are going to get numb sometimes to the things of God. The Holy Spirit will break through eventually, but you need to turn away right now. But if you're here today and you have been playing church and you've been playing the game of church for years and you show up at church and we're so glad you're here, but you have never professed Christ, I want to tell you someday that just because you go to church doesn't mean you're saved. What are the scariest verses in the Bible? I've told you before, Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Many, Jesus say, will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, did I not do this in your name and that in your name and, and cast out demons and go to business meetings and go to Sunday night hymn sings and, and, and do this and do this and I served in the nursery, Lord. Oh, I'm here. And, and he will look at you someday and say, I never knew you away from me, you worker of iniquity. The way of salvation is clear, but these people rejected it. Look, when you keep God at arm's length, you're provoking God, and God is filled with ag agitation towards you. Amy, if you'll go ahead and put up the next point here. I want to make this point clear. The Bible says, and this is on your notes, 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. It never says God is wrath. God has wrath as an attribute of his nature, to be sure. God's wrath abides on all those who don't know Jesus. But we have to provoke him to wrath. But we don't have to provoke him to love. Love flows out of his deep, spontaneous nature and heart, if you will. His love is always there. So, so many people get wrapped up in this that they say, well, how could I ever love or follow a God that would be wrathful, vengeful, anger towards people? Guys, he loves just the same, doesn't he? He loves us so much that he gave his son. It's not that he's vengeful and wrathful. Yes, he is, he, but that has a purpose. It's because people have rejected the very simple commands that he gave us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's where the wrath comes in, and rejecting him for who he is. It never says God is wrath. Don't take that as a, some would say, well, it's God's love. He never has any wrath. Yes, he does, but we have to provoke him to wrath. His patience endures for generation to generation. What an amazing God. But if you're a, not a Christian here today, you need to know 
The wrath of God is on your head. And the only way to be out of that is by Jesus Christ. That's number two. What else does an unbelief, what else does unbelief do and why it's deadly? Because number three, it tries God's patience. It tries God's patience. Look at verse nine. It says, they, and this is straight from the text, when your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. All right. Can I pick on my wife for a minute? My wife just turned the number in this thing. See, I didn't say it. I just pointed you to it. My wife is a beautiful number of these years right here. I've known her for about 13 of those years. 40 years is a long time. What were you doing 40 years ago? For some of you, I don't know if you want to answer that question. I know I wasn't born yet. Thank you. I already know that. But I want you to know 40 years is a very long time. If God wanted to get rid of those people wandering in the desert, could he have done so at the blip of a finger? Oh, yes, he could have. See Sodom and Gomorrah, see the Egyptians, see everything there. But he was patient with them. Why was he patient with them? Mainly because he still loved them despite them. So let me ask you this question. Were those people in the desert saved? To put it in New Testament terminology, were they really saved? Guys, they weren't. They tested the Lord. Every one of them died. Can you imagine if you were a young man and you, were, you knew every person who was not a child of the people who came out of the Exodus, the younger generation, and you were down to the last five, and you knew when you died, everyone else would get to go celebrate. What a weird feeling that was. You're, they were marked. They pushed God to the edge. It, it, God was not in some lapse judgment. But for 40 years, they complained. They grumbled. They said it's better to be a slave because they did not trust God. This is a lifestyle of refusing God. How do you know if someone's not a Christian? You know because they refuse God their whole lives. They continue to refuse God. There may be times where they have a flare and they feel close to Christ, but sometimes you'll hear people say this. You ever heard them say this? I tried Jesus once and that didn't work out very well for me. You don't try Jesus out. He's not a, he's not a car at, at your local dealership that you hop in and say, man, that air conditioner is really ice cold. Let me buy this off the lot right now. You either love him or you don't. And unbelief tries the patience of God. And Amy will put this up here. God's patience is designed, the scripture says, doesn't it, to lead us to repentance. It is not designed to make us bolder in our sin. And what I mean by that is if Jesus really went through the tormenting hell of the cross to redeem us, and we neglect that in pursuit of sin, we shall be like Hebrews 2.3 says, that how shall we escape such a great salvation? Look today. If you are a sinner here and you have not come to Jesus, God has been patient with you. What an awesome thing that is. And Christians, can I speak to us for a second? When someone sins, we should be patient with each other even as they sin. Amen? I'm going to be honest. My, my family is not perfect. I do things that may irritate you at times. Our kids are normal kids. They may do things. But I want to tell you we love them anyway, don't we? And you all love us. And we're going to be patient with each other. Doesn't mean there's not hard forgiveness. Doesn't mean there's not consequences. But if God was patient with us for years and years and years before we came to Christ, how much more patient should we be with people who don't yet know Jesus Christ? So patient. But it tries, unbelief does, the patience of God. Number four, unbelief also, and this is kind of like number two, a little more specific, it arouses God's anger. Not just provokes, but arouses 
God's anger. Look back at verse 10. He says in verse 10, Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Look, this implies maybe except for Joshua and Caleb and Aaron that he was angry with the whole generation. God is not indifferent or passive towards unbelief. Now, I'm going to say something to you, and many of you are going to look at me with a furrowed brow, but I, I, I'm warning you now. You ready? Okay. Got your seatbelts on? There's a phrase that runs around that says, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. That is not biblical. God, in fact, loves the sinner, but he also hates the sinner. Say, so what do you mean by that? Hold your spot there. Will you go to Psalm chapter 5, verse 4? Psalm chapter 5, verse 4. I want you to hear it from God's lips. I want to clarify what I mean and what I don't mean, but I want you to know why God's anger was aroused. You need to see this. You need to know this. Psalm 5, verse 4. Hold your spot in Hebrews 3. We'll get back there. Does God love everyone? Guys, God loves the world, yes. But I want you to see this. Don't miss this. If you were in a church 200 years ago, this would have been common fare. But here it is, verse 4. For you are a God, you, excuse me, you are not a God who delights in wickedness that evil may dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, verse 5. You hate all evildoers. Whoa, 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 pastor. God can't hate. Oh, yes, he does. Either God hates or David is speaking out of his lips and was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. So we have to take both realities, don't we? God absolutely loves those whom he died for. But there is a point at which God's wrath, his hatred, his anger, his indignation, rolling all those up into one, is going to be blasted out to people who do not know Jesus Christ. You say, how could that be? Guys, you already believe this, don't you? It's called hell. This is where this is ultimately going to happen. Does God love the sinner? Yes, he does. Does God hate the sin? Yes, he does. Does God hate the sinner? The Bible says he does. And that should shock us into life. Because unbelief is not just, oh, that's your, you believe that, I'll believe this. Unbelief is such an affront, such a crazy thing to God that he has to use these words inspired by David himself. So I would encourage you, and I've said it too, be careful saying that God loves the sinner and hates the sin. We ought to tack on a third verse. God does hate the sinner. But guess what? If that person were to call upon the name of the Lord, do you know what he would do? Come on down. You're the next contestant on who wants to be forgiven of all their sins. And it's not a game show, it's reality. I want you to know that. Don't let cultural phrases dictate your biblical theology. This is not a major point I want to harp on, but I want to remind you, why did God get angry at them? For their sin, yes, but because their person was totally opposed to God. Everything in them screamed at God, get away from me. Ever been around a person like that? I want to remind you outside of Jesus Christ, that's what every one of us think. To our very core, we just, oh, God, I hate you. I hate that. But God, if you're a Christian, broke into your heart and he drilled down. He broke that hard heart of yours and gave you a soft heart so you might believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Go back to Hebrews 3. Amy, you can go ahead and put it up on the next thing. I don't need to say this much here. 
but there are some around the world that this is not a truth. But if you don't believe in the wrath of God, you will never really understand God's love. Unless you understand how much your sin is aided by God, then you will not understand how much God really loves you. There's been a history here, even at this church, where some taught that God's wrath was nothing more than God kind of flinching and saying preacher words. You know, you know what that is, preacher words? It's where the preacher gets a preacher voice on, and he, get, you know, he talks like this in the pulpit. Hey, he talks like this down here. No, God doesn't mince his words. If you don't believe in God's wrath, you don't believe in his love. Because, guys, he came because the wrath was on us and that he loved us so much he gave his life for us. What an awesome God we serve. Number five, you ready? Last point. Number five, unbelief arouses God's anger, but it also forfeits God's blessing. It forfeits God's blessing. Look at verse 11. This is a divine oath that God took. He said, I swore in my wrath. He said, I swore in my wrath that they would not what? That they would not enter my rest. Well, how is God swearing? You know, some of you may have been in a place. Do we still do this? And I'm looking around. Do they still, when you... Go to court. Do you still put your hand on a Bible? I'm looking at Lawyer Dave here and others. I don't know if we know. Do, do we still swear by the Bible in court of law? Is that a thing? I think it is. But it used to be in old times when you went in and you see those old Perry Mason shows or whatever, they put their hand on the Bible and they say, I swear to tell the whole truth. Or I say, tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. And, you know, most people are just doing their thing. They're putting their hand on it. But who does God swear by? You ever thought about that before? I mean, we're swearing to God that we're going to tell the whole truth in a court of law. But who does God swear by? Himself. There's no one above him. There's no one beside him. There's no one beside. He doesn't answer to a tribunal of gods in some Greek mythology or some Mormon theology. God is literally swearing by himself. We put our hand on our Bible, but, but God as it is says, I swear by myself. There's no one higher to go to. He answers to himself. That sounds weird, but that's the God we serve. They shall not enter my rest. Now, the nation of Israel, that was referring, of course, to the promised land, right? They were not going to see the promised land because they fought against God when the spies went out and they grumbled that, that we can't take those people, and God gave them 40 years. But in the New Testament, rest here implies who? Speaking about Jesus. If you know Jesus, you know rest. Let all who are weary and, 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 who are weary and heavy laden come to me and they will find rest, Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Guys, today, he swears by his wrath that no one will, will, will surrender except if they come to his rest, his rest. We'll be looking at that over the next few weeks. But listen, Amy will put this up here. Many will perish eternally, not because they want to be damned today, but because they postpone salvation until tomorrow. The rest of God is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. And I want to tell you today, most people know about Jesus. They just don't know who Jesus really is. That's always been a problem. And so I want to remind you today, if you're a Christian, that many will perish eternally because God has sworn they will not enter rest. Christian, I also want to remind you that hell has no rest. You know, at some points, even as a runner, at some points my coach gives me things, he'll say like, go run 20 minutes at this pace and then you can take a two-minute walk or standing rest or whatever. You know, that's nice because I couldn't do that all day. I have to take a break. In hell, there's no rest. It's constant torment. Do you see why unbelief is the sin of all sins? Because people who reject God literally reject who he is. So Christian, what does this mean for you? We'll close with these. We've been calling these faith lessons, as you were. 
And Amy, you can just, I think they're all on the same screen. If you want to just put them all up for us, please. Thank you. Christian, I just want to remind you as we close today that the kindest, gentlest, and most generous unbeliever, non-Christian, whatever you want to call it, you know is in a desperate need of knowing and trusting in Christ. Guys, if you look around, there are some really awesome people in this world, aren't there? I mean, I mean that from a, I'm looking at secular eyes. Like, if you look around, there are some really neat people in the world, people who go and do amazing things to raise money uh, for, for lesser-known charities or, or people who, who like, I, I read a story the other day about a 95-year-old crossing guard who's a World War II vet who at 95 hung up his, uh, you know, his, uh, what do they call it, vest, like the, the, the vest that he puts out so he doesn't get run over, you know, out there. What did it, what, that's great. It's wonderful. I don't know those people's hearts, but I'm just here to tell you, you need to be reminded that those nice people of the world are not nice in God's eyes. They are what is described right here. They're unbelieving, and everything that we've read about and said hangs over their heads. And Christians, I want to remind you this morning that you grow the most in unbelief. You grow the most when you're around people who don't believe the same thing you believe because it forces you, doesn't it, in God's timing to be intentional about what you really believe. You don't want to be caught in a situation where you're put before, well, what do you think about this? And you've never really thought about it before, and you have to say something quickly just to get them off your back while you need to know what you believe. But I want to remind you lastly that God is always working to bring human history to its appointed end. If you are a prophecy pundit, Russia attacking Ukraine has like, and I said this in Sunday school, like if you had a meter, it's like taking you off the charts right now. Look, you can get into all that stuff. There's a website called the Rapture Index. If, you, if you're into that, you can type in Rapture Index, and the Rapture Index went from a pretty stable 150 up to the 3 and 400s. You know, look, Christ comes when he comes, amen? That's what we know. He is coming. But I want you to know that everything this world faces, you face, I face, we face, in the midst of unbelief is all part of God's plans to bring it to an appointed end. God hasn't left us hanging out here. He hasn't left us out to dry. He will carry you home. And Christian, even if that means a world that rejects Jesus mostly, you can count God that he loves you despite your unbelief. So Christian, I would just close with this. I would encourage you this week to reflect on this passage and pray about every person you know that is in this boat. Your prayers might change a bit this week as you think about the people. And if you would like a name, just a first name or a code name even, whatever, put on our prayer list. We have an ongoing list we've been keeping. We pray for on Wednesday nights and through the week about unsaved people. We'd love to add that to the list. Next week, we're going to be looking at the anatomy of a heart that is in an unbelieving world, and this is more for you. And I would also ask us to pray. We may be having some visitors coming in the next few weeks pertinent to our family that may not know Jesus Christ. And if you, I won't fill those details online, but we may have some friends that are coming from ours that we'd ask you to pray for that need to know Jesus. They have a good connection to our family. Would you pray for that? Let's pray together. A sobering message, not one I want to preach, but thank you for hanging with us. Let's pray together as we close out today. Father, as we think about this message, we consider the ramifications of it. We pray this has not been done with a haughty spirit. We pray this has not been done with a a better, a holier-than-thou spirit, Lord. We pray this has not been done in a way that has uh, allowed us Christians to look down upon 
those without Christ. In the reverse, Lord, we pray that it has humbled us, it's reminded us of the seriousness of sin, and especially as has been mentioned here, the five reasons of unbelief that are deadly. Father, we pray that all those without Christ would see the goodness and greatness of the Son of God as we settle in our big idea. Father, that they would see the Lord Jesus Christ as Isaiah saw high and lifted up with seraphim flying around singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And yet, Father, there are so many in this world who have been blinded to that. Father, would you open up eyes and ears of those whom you've called out before time passed to come to know you. Lord, we know not their names or situations, but we know that we're called to be faithful. So, Father, I pray also for Christians in this room who have faithfully shared the gospel recently. And they feel that weight of trying to convert or, 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 or change a heart of a family member or a friend who is yet to come to Christ. Father, may we be faithful as Paul was in 1 Thessalonians this morning in Acts 17 to go and reason from the scriptures that he, you are the, your son is the Christ, the risen one, the king, the Lord of lords. But, Father, we lay at your feet all those names that we have in our minds and people we know without Christ because we can't change a heart. Only you can. Father, if we could change our hearts, we would easily uh, get away from you with our own hearts and hands as well. But nothing in our hands we bring, only to the cross truly do we cling. Father, we love you so much. We ask this today again. We sing our last song in Jesus' name. Amen.